Well, it, it is really a, a very great privilege uh, for me to share this platform uh, with Jeremy. Um, I've known of him, obviously, for quite a long time, but I've been following him a bit more closely recently because I found there was a, uh, a thing one could do on the web where I get notified every time he uh, speaks in the house. And uh, one's immediately see the enormous breadth of his uh, engagement with uh, everything from you know very, a, a very passionate, I would say, constituency uh, MP, very involved in locals, lo local micro-struggles, um, raising questions in the House about uh, matters that I think will concern all of us here, particularly, for example, about the health service, the destruction of the National Health Service, um, the, uh, the incursion of the market at the universities. He's very involved in the struggle of the, uh, the Chagas Islanders to get their island back. Um, I'm very involved in the arts and the importance of arts in cultural life. Um, I was a bit uh, worried when we met yesterday whether there might be areas that I would uh, like to discuss with him that he would rather not discuss in, in public. I, my imagination was it, that life in the Labour Party for Jeremy Corbyn cannot be easy. Uh, but uh, he... Uh, Not easy for the Labour <laughs> He was quick to tell <laughs> me that I, I didn't have to worry. And I was reminded of something, a, a, a person who was very involved in uh, uh, revolutionary politics who once said to me that... Uh, I, I wanted to ask him a question. I said, can I ask you an indiscreet question? And he said, you can ask any indiscreet question you like, but you will not get an indiscreet answer. <laughs> But when Jeremy and I were, were, were talking last night, I mean, one of the things I think we're both, and everyone yeah, is acutely aware of, is the way that the world has changed. And a kind of relentless quality to every day hearing more bad news, really, about the destruction of the kind of things that many of us a generation ago took completely for granted. And in that generation or two generations ago, uh, there was a word that was commonly used by people on the left, and that word was socialism. And it's now always become the love that, that dare not speak its name, particularly perhaps in the Labour Party. Um, and I thought what we might do is talk about some rather general uh, issues, which I hope are not too abstract, about socialism and democracy and the role of trade unionism in socialism and democracy as rather general issues because they don't get discussed much these days. And uh, the latter is, of course, particularly relevant in terms of the uh, goings-on currently in the Labour Party, the, the anti-trade union movements within the Labour Party. Um, so I thought I might start... Um, I mean, Jeremy told me yesterday that it comes from a, a tradition of socialism that his parents met in, in Conway Hall, uh, supporting the Spanish Civil War against the Francoistas. And uh, his mother was also involved in the Cable Street March. So he came from an a, a, a activist stock, and at the age of 15 was given George Orwell's diaries to read, which made a huge impression upon him. Subsequently, he... Uh, didn't do that greatly at school, which he thinks uh, not going to university was a great advantage. Um, 
But he did send off Latin America, which is a very politicizing experience. And uh, so I thought we might start by asking you to say something about the relation of socialism to democracy. <clears throat> thanks very much. And thanks all for coming along tonight. And thanks to Rowan Arts for putting this event on. And uh, I've got a lot of admiration for Rowan Arts in the, the way it provides an artistic space for a very large number of people in all kinds of different ideas and disciplines and things. And uh, I think it's mobilized a lot of people and helped to bring our communities together, uh, not in any elitist sense, but in the absolute opposite. So a big thank you to Rowan Arts for putting on tonight. And as you can see, this is a sort of um, gentleman of a certain age, bearded twosome you've got here in front of you. <laughs> Uh, we're both born in the same year. We both have beards, and, and we had a very agreeable conversation over coffee last night in the uh, Riff Cafe on Seven Sisters Road. And so we've uh, had a, a quite a good chat about a lot of things. So thanks all for coming. Uh, good point: socialism and democracy. We made a joke about this last night. You all remember Shirley Williams when she was. Um, a theoretically radical member of the uh, Wilson government pushing comprehensive education, which I agreed with her on. And uh, she was interviewed by a very right-wing American commentator called William Buckley. And he gave some lengthy introduction about the dangers of European socialism creeping over to the USA, etc., etc. And then said, okay, Mrs. Williams, how do you describe yourself? And she said, I'm a democratic socialist. And he said, wow. I thought socialism was democratic anyway. Why do you have to qualify it in that way? Interesting point. Um, what's the relationship with socialism and democracy? Well, democracy, in my view, is about everyone having an opportunity to say something, to do something, to vote, to take part, to assemble, to meet, to march, to speak, to write, to think, to do, and so on. Um, but if you go down a road of um, putting people into power and don't hold them to any form of account, then you end up with a corrupt mirror of what you thought you got rid of in the first place. And if you look at many societies where revolutionary governments have, have taken over and there's a very strong grouping around those people that want to change and improve society, very genuine, very committed, very good people. But if you're not accountable to somebody for what you do, you surround yourself by people who agree with you, and you then end up seeing enemies in those who want to ask you questions, and you see opponents in those that don't agree with what you do. And so the whole question to me is about constructing a society where those in power are genuinely held to account. Now, this country has... Um, huge illusions about the level of democracy we have within our society. And uh, when uh, we ever have um, international guests coming to Parliament, you hear these um, mind-numbingly boring speeches of introduction saying you've come to the home of democracy and you've come to the mother of Parliament and you've come to the most democratic society in the world. And they then go on to describe the role of the royal family in the House of Lords. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and so there is a big gap there. There is also 
the hidden un uh, hidden parallel state in Britain of a uh, combination of social and economic class divisions in which um, uh, a very large group of extremely wealthy people and very influential people can essentially bypass all kinds of democratic norms and keep themselves in very influential positions. Why is the Duke of Westminster still the richest person in the world, or, or richest person in this country, and many, many others like that, who seem to have avoided uh, all things that were thought to be catastrophic, such as um, inheritance tax, income tax, all kinds of things, and, and their wealth and land ownership carries on. And then you look at some of the institutions that we hold dear and we think are subject to the control of people in elected office. Think about yesterday's news, the Ellison report, Mark mm -hmm. Ellison's report, into the behavior of the police surrounding uh, the McPherson inquiry uh, into the um, death of Stephen Lawrence. Well, I was in Parliament yesterday for the end of Theresa May's statement, and then I heard a lot of the questions. Obviously, I've read the statement and so on since then. And there's something deeply frightening about it. Now, I, I, Jack Straw and I have lots of differences on lots of subjects, and tonight isn't long enough to go through all those differences. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he made a very powerful point. He said, when he became Home Secretary, he was aware that files had been kept on him when he was uh, president of the National Union of Students. He did, he was a councillor for this very ward at one time on Islington Council. And um, he asked if these files still existed and would they be destroyed? And they were all about his activities as the US president. The Met Police had them. And he then asked for an assurance they weren't keeping any more files on anybody else in undertaking this kind of surveillance work. And he was apparently given the assurances he sought and he believed them. And he then wanted to set up the Macpherson inquiry into the issues surrounding Stephen Lawrence. And he said he met the utmost resistance from the police in the setting up of the Macpherson inquiry. He did set it up. Macpherson did the inquiry. And it's only now, much later on, long time on, 10 years on, we now discover that the Special Demonstrations Unit of the Metropolitan Police, which was set up in 1968, carried on in a secret way. The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, I'm not sure which one, set up an internal anti-corruption unit to look at what the Special Demonstrations Unit were doing. And so you had two secret organizations within the Met investigating each other. And then McPherson asks for evidence from the Metropolitan Police concerning their treatment of the family, Dorian and Neville Lawrence and the f whole Lawrence family, and absolutely assured that um, nothing bad going on. They respect Dorian and Neville Lawrence's right to take legal action against the Met Police. It's only now, when uh, the Ellison report has come out, we discover that the police had infiltrated the family circle in order to destroy the legal case that was being taken by the Lawrence family against the Metropolitan Police. That is scary stuff that you've got. Um, and, and I recall many years ago being involved in a campaign to set up an accountable police force in London um, because up until uh, 1998, 2000 or thereabouts, the police force in London was the Home Secretary. And it's only later we get the, the elected police authority with the election of the mayor. 
Um, but their control over the police force is, is quite limited. And so I just think that is just one example of the lack of accountability of major institutions within our society and the complete uh, lack of a completely huge democratic deficit there. And so I come from the scenario, one, my job in Parliament is to hold government to account, and I'll finish on this point because you look as though you're slightly <laughs> agitated, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that uh, the job of an MP in Parliament is to hold government to account. And that's fine, and I support the principles of an elected assembly, which is what the House of Commons is, but on a constituency basis, because that gives you some kind of relationship to a community. But Parliament is very fettered by a number of things. One is the Prime Minister exercises the royal prerogative on behalf of the, the Queen. He can basically do anything he likes in, in terms of declaring war if he wants to. He doesn't have to consult Parliament. He usually does, but doesn't have to. Um, and also, the powers of patronage of party leaders are absolutely huge. And so when it comes to holding your own government to account when it's your own party, that is when the parliamentary democracy sta starts to unravel quite quickly. And uh, I've been at the receiving end of uh, massive amounts of pressure saying, don't you dare ask our ministers this question, that question, or the other, and to which I reply that uh, uh, they say, well, where, where do your loyalties lie? And I said, my loyalties lie towards having a democracy in our society and asking questions, however awkward or embarrassing they might be. That is what we're there to do. Um, but when you have a system when success in politics is deemed to be your promotion to appointed office by the process of patronage, then you immediately fetter all the abilities to have that kind of democratic accountability. But there is good news. You don't believe me, do you? <laughs> there is some good news. At the end of the expenses scandal in 2008-9, um, uh, Tony Wright, um, Labour MP for Cannock, um, started off as quite on the right of the party in many ways. And he then set up a commission, or a commission was set up, looking at parliamentary procedure. And uh, out of that has come election by secret ballot of the main officers in the House, Speaker and Deputy Speaker, select committee chairs, membership of select committees, and uh, some of the visits of the House is now given over to backbenchers. So there suddenly becomes a different role for MPs. They don't have to be ministers or shadow ministers. They can equally be effective on select committees holding government and so on to account. That, to me, is a very small but quite significant step towards making Parliament more effective. But it's got to go very much further. There's many other aspects of lack of democracy in society, but I just throw you those things out as a start. I hope that's a help. That's a great help, but I, I'd like to push you further on it because, you know, if I was to be devil's advocate, I could say, what a triumph of the British constitutional democracy to for these things to have come out, for measures to be taken. No system is perfect. There's always going to be checks and balances and failures, and these have been discovered. So we don't need this terrible world socialism. I mean, socialism is surely anti-democratic. What we need is a better functioning, as good functioning as we can, a parliamentary democracy. And we need people like you to be there to um, help us make the our parliamentary democracy better. And we don't need um, trade unions, for example, to have the kind of power that they've had over the Labour Party. Surely that's anti-democratic. So, 
I'm playing devil's advocate, but I want to, because I want to push you on the word socialism and the importance of trade unionism. Yeah, there's two points on that. One is that, um, yes, there is something interesting in that um, Britain has sent to prison a number of MPs who had um, fiddled expenses. And the day that um, the first one went to prison, I, was, I phoned my partner who was in Mexico at the time, and we were chatting about this. And, and she said, oh, I heard something on the news that a British MP had gone to prison, but the report was wrong. I said, why? She said, well, why would anyone go to prison for £20,000? I said, well, that's what the figure was, and that's what he's gone to prison for um, uh, nicking. And she, so I said, how does that compare to Mexico? She said, well they'd all be on 10 life sentences straight away <laughs> for, for the levels of corruption. And she was quite impressed that the British courts would actually imprison members of parliament for fitting expenses. So th there, there is something there about the, the strength of it, of a, um, a legal system that is prepared to do that, despite pressures that are put on it. But um, having been through many cases of miscarriage of justice, you also see another side to the legal system and the way that it corrals together and is often not prepared to answer or take up questions. And then you look at cuts in legal aid and everything else and you see a lack of access to an awful lot of other things. But on the democracy issue, the point you make about trade unions, do we need them in society? Well, yes, of course you do, because we have democracy to a point. You can elect your MP, you can elect your councillor, elect your GLA member, elect your mayor, elect your member of the European Parliament, um, but somewhere along the line you end up with uh, losing your national health service, um, having our whole welfare state being seriously undermined if not destroyed at the same time. And when you're in work, what kind of democracy is there around your workplace? If you're a public sector worker, the um, employer is accountable in some form, either to local government or to parliament. If you're a private sector employer and you're an employee in the private sector, factory worker, you have very little power over how you work, what you do, what your promotion chances are, or what your company does, or whether or not they decide to asset strip the company and move the, the thing somewhere else, unless you have an effective voice through trade unions. And I came into political activity through being a trade union member, um, active trade union member, and then later went on to become an organizer for the National Union of Public Employees. So I see trade unions as a force for good in society, the biggest voluntary organization we've got, six million people are members of trade unions, and uh, despite what the media says about them all the time, many, many people, particularly young workers, increasingly realizing the value of unions. I'd also say that unions' influence on the Labour Party has been important in lots of ways. Why did we get health and safety at work legislation? Where did we get minimum wage from? Where did we get... Um, equalities legislation from an awful lot of that stuff started in trade unions and uh, give you an example the minimum wage stuff uh, i was in in the early 1970s i for a time was uh, worked at the engineering union and uh, then the idea was being pushed by my later union newpy of a national minimum wage the engineering union leadership at that time, Hugh Scanlon and others, said a national minimum wage was a threat to trade union independence because it would take away the role of unions in collective bargaining. 
I thought it was an absolutely ludicrous position, quite honestly, and, and said so, which probably didn't do my career prospects much good in the, uh, in the engineering union, uh, on the basis that um, anything that's advancing people against poverty has got to be a good thing. Um, and then it was, it was something really quite, to me, quite remarkable about it. In summer 97, staying up all night in Parliament, cycling home up the Camden Road at 5.30 in the morning, and for one time in my life feeling, wow, we've done something really good here tonight. We've just passed legislation to introduce a national minimum wage to this country. It's too low. The living wage should be the minimum wage. There's lots of other things from it. But I just thought, and that all started for a group of people in Newpee 25, 30 years before when they were prepared to raise that issue and campaign for it. And that came because they were a, a union prepared to do it. Well done then. Uh, see, the other word that isn't used very much is, is capitalism. And capital, it seems to me, always rewrites history. So that all gains that have been made by working class movements, particularly trade unions, which were often gained in toil and blood, are rewritten as gifts. These are things that the beneficent capital gave to the workers. Um, and I think it's a constant struggle to keep in the public eye the very thing that you've just said, that every health and safety at work is one. I would actually say the National Health Service and the Welfare State is uh, absolutely bedded and founded in the trade union movement. Um, and yet, today, you know, in our papers, um, our once beloved Labour Party leaders are, seem to be doing everything they can to disenfranchise the the, uh, the trade union movement from the labor uh, from, from the labor party and so that is very very dispiriting for us to watch yeah i think people should be prepared to recognize the value of trade unions in society value the democracy of them and uh, recognize that the international labor organization conventions mean something and should mean something and so why is it the british government is prepared to say they think Trade unions raising the voice for worker safety in Bangladesh is a good thing, but trade unions raising the issue of safety on our underground system is not a good thing. Double standards, hypocrisy, or what? Um, I think we should be quite, there's quite an interesting trace through history, if you like. We were discussing this last night. Uh, if you take European and British history from the latter part of the 18th century through. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to give you a whole lecture on this. I'm not capable of doing that anyway. But back to the Magna Carta. No, well, I, I did... <laughs> Shall I tell him? That? Yes. No. So this is a complete aside, but... Um, I'll keep you on track. Yeah, you'll keep me on track, but I'll tell you this anyway. We were... Um, I was in the High Court with the Chagos Islanders, and uh, we were campaigning for them to get compensation for being removed from Diego Garcia and the other islands and dumped in Mauritius in order to make way for an American nuclear base. And I've been very involved in this campaign for a very long time. We've been to a lot of high court cases. And we had Sir Sidney Kintridge speaking for us, for the Chagos Islanders. He was the South African barrister who did the Steve Biko case in um, during apartheid years. Absolutely brilliant guy. And um, he was doing his closing remarks, and he was speaking at the most enormous length about the history of colonial administrative law 
and um, how this impacted on Brit the British state and how it impacted in a later level on the Chagos Islands. The island has been removed to the then colony of Mauritius. And quite a lot of us having some trouble keeping up with Sir Sidney as to where this whole argument was going, at which point the judge, who was clearly in some awe of Sir Sidney, sort of leaned forward and said, <coughs> excuse me, Sir Sidney, I realise I don't wish to interrupt your summing up, but could you give me a rough indication of how long you expect to be during your during in your summing up of the case? And Sir Sidney looks around and says, well, you know, who is this man to question me? And he said, my lord, this is a serious and important case. Yes, of course, Sir Sidney, it is. And it's a very important case, and the historical significance of it must not be overlooked. Of course, Sir Sidney. He said, I think by the end of today, I might have got to the Magna Carta. <laughs> and after that, we'll make some progress. <laughs> and he then went on for another two days. <laughs> but it was like a history of um, colonial, colonial law, quite significant. So, um, you know, the, the history is not a bad, bad judge. The point I was going to make was the narrative. If you look at, in the time of the French Revolution, Britain, the British establishment, was terrified of the French Revolution and its consequences. Absolutely terrified of it. So you had Edmund Burke and you had all these other people. You had, on the other side, uh, William Godwin, who lived in Newington Green, Mary Wollstonecroft, who lived in Newington Green, Tom Paine, who write, wrote The Rights of Man at The Angel, and um, many others in the left corresponding societies. They were put on trial for treason, or Godwin was anyway, uh, for challenging the whole principle of why Britain was so terrified and frightened of the French Revolution. And then there was a period of utmost repression socially in, in Britain. There were anti-trade union legislation, Tolpa the Martyrs deported uh, in the aftermath of it. There was the um, Sus laws that came in at that time. A whole lot of stuff came in. Very, very repressive period. And then things changed. Great Reform Act of 1832, which wasn't that great in terms of extending the franchise, but was significant in terms of the principle of um, having an elected parliament, which William Godwin was then made master of the House of Commons. And when the House of Commons burnt down the Great Fire of 1833, he was meant to be looking after the safety of the building. He was in the theatre at the time. A runner was sent to the theatre to get him to come back and do something about the fire. And he said to this person, he said, I'm in the theatre and I will not be disturbed. Go away. So the place burnt down. Um, and, but after that, a lot of things happened. General trade unions were, were formed. There was opposition to the Enclosure Acts. The Factories Act came. 1870 came state education of a sort. And then uh, other things came, such as the pension, the national insurance, votes for women came during and after the First World War, and we, we take things on from them. There is a link between expanding democracy and expanding accountability with the huge social changes that are taking place in Britain. Now, the others, uh, other side, if you like, if there is two sides in this argument, could argue the other way around and saying, well, the employers needed a literate workforce, therefore 
uh, they brought in state education. They were embarrassed about the number of people dying in factories, so they had to bring in and allow Factories Act legislation to come in. They were um, worried about the inefficiency of uh, the uh, colonial government system, therefore they were prepared to support the abolition of the slave trade. But, and then eventually the abolition of slavery. But all those things were accompanied by the growth of radical forces in our society that to some extent have been freed up by the development of democracy. And in this area, fantastic. Chartists met and marched here, um, and the people that I, Wollstonecraft and others that I talked about, there is a connection between democracy and social advance. And then eventually we got what I think is the, probably the most significant piece of legislation that ever went through the British Parliament, and that is the establishment of the National Health Service. Because if you think about it, the principle that health care is a human right that the state, the community, the public must provide health care for everybody is something pretty revolutionary. And I think it's the greatest thing we've got, and this is why I'm so passionate about defending it. So democracy can lead to all sorts of huge advances and huge changes, but it can also be deeply manipulated. And we talked about this last night. Um, I remember in the 1960s, end of the 60s, reading a book called The Selling of the President, about uh, the way President Nixon campaigned. And what he would do was pick out crime statistics at some obscure town in the USA, prepare a local broadcast to say, well, I'm going to sort out crime in this town, then pick out some other statistics somewhere else and do utterly cynical behavior all across the whole country. These days, that would be called political science and what a brilliant man he actually was, rather than being prepared to stand up for some kind of general political narrative and general political principles. And what I think is sad is the lack of principles and, to some extent, lack of ideology in politics. When both parties offer a broadly similar economic strategy, it's not very attractive to the uh, electorate as a whole. And so that is where we come back to confronting principal power structures in it within our world and our society, which is why um, after the great crash of 2008, very interesting, the sales of Marx's books went up massively for, for quite a while. And uh, you, could, you could go into Waterstones in Piccadilly and they say this way to get a Marx, you know. So people are, are reading a bit and are trying to learn a bit. Who knows? I mean, when you mention um, the health service, uh, and more broadly, the public sector. Um, I think those of us uh, who are both you know, politically committed to those uh, forms of, of social and political and community organization, uh, who are also involved in the psychotherapy world, have a kind of concept of community health. I don't mean health in the medical sense. I mean the health of a community in their capacity to provide uh, structures which protect uh, the rights of the individuals in the community. And I think many of us think that the uh, forms of public organization, particularly the health service, health and education and housing, are that if we start from a position in which all of us have within us sort of noble aspirations of an altruistic sort, which I think is the case, but that we also have aspirations of a thoroughly different sort, hateful aspirations, greed and selfishness. If these are facts of our nature, then we can ask what forms of social organization might support the more 
as we might think of it, reparative aspects of human beings? And what forms of social organization might actually lend um, to inflame the more violent and greedy aspects of our nature? Now, I think the, uh, for example, progressive taxation is a way in which individuals in a community agree to surrender part of their income for the care of others without having necessarily any role to play in who those others are. They render that money to the state to provide for the community. Now, it seems to me there's always inevitably been a tension between the, um, the NHS, the, uh, the education system and housing. There's always been a tension between that and capital and markets. And markets have always, I think on a purely economic level, these are potential fantastic markets. But also on an ideological level, they've been a thorn in the side of capital. And it does feel to us that what felt two generations ago to be inviolate, and it was part of Thatcher's brilliance that she saw that it wasn't inviolate, they needed to introduce the market form into the health service to uh, uh, create the division between so-called purchasers and providers, change the consciousness. And that was obviously the beginning of the game. But what was very distressing for many of us was to see new labor achieve more than Thatcher mm -hmm. thought was possible. And Thatcher is down on record as saying, being asked about what she regards as some of her greatest achievements. And she said, one of them is new labor. That is that new labor carried out her project in ways that she would not have deemed possible. And we all remember, you know, the loads of money culture. So now it seems to me that the, um, the gloves are off. That the nature of markets and capitals and neoliberalism is now exposed. We're seeing people moved out of their houses because of bedroom taxes, no mansion taxes. We're seeing um, uh, the biggest increase in inequality this country, I think, has seen for a very, very long time. And we're seeing the penetration of the market form into everything, even into politics, as you were saying. So, for example, rather than having uh, a project that you want to persuade people of its value, say a socialist project, people just worry about getting votes. So that the whole political process becomes a marketized system. How can we persuade people to vote for us? Well, find out what they want, then let's offer it. And there seems to us, to many of us on the left, to be a terrible failure of nerve in the Labour Party. And we feel this has caused untold damage to our community health. You think back to those people that learnt the lessons of the poverty of the um, 18th and 19th century, the brutality of the land enclosures, the brutality of industrialization and um, were prepared to stand up against it. I remember reading a book called The Geography of Life and Death by L. Dudley Stamp. Some of you may remember it. I think it's probably out of print now. It was quite interesting <coughs> description of people's living standards and life expectancy based on where they live. And it was the conclusions were fairly obvious in the sense that if you live next to a polluting factory, um, with lots of smoke coming out of it, you're likely to end up with lung cancer, emphysema, or a whole lot of, of other things. And he 
described in a very graphic way these things. And uh, it, he was arguing for pollution controls and, and so on. Sadly, if you look at the health inequalities map now, okay, life expectancy is much longer. And um, uh, health care in, in many ways is much better. The health inequalities are still absolutely enormous. If you take a bus from Muswell Hill to Tottenham, the life expectancy drops by 12 years in four miles. And if you take a journey from, say, mid-Sussex to <clears throat> Hackney, you'd, you'd find similar things. And you find that um, all across the country. So inequality is still very, very much there. And uh, so we once had a very good poster done for Islington Community Health Council saying the NHS is great and it had um, then sort of pollution clouds all around, but it can't consume all the smoke and this was a campaign for public health and, and better environmental conditions. Um, then the establishment of the National Health Service was a very interesting battle. Uh, and the more you read about it, the more fascinating it becomes. Why did, first of all, why did Labour do it? And that was because they felt wedded to the commitments they'd made in the 1930s and also people during the Second World War had got more than a whiff of what a community could be like and what, what a community could achieve together. And then the other argument, which is quite an interesting debate, uh, is that whether the health service should be national or local. Um, the other night we had a public meeting about the Whittington and the Whittington chair, Steve Hitchens, claimed that um, the Liberals and the Tories always wanted a local health service at the end of the Second World War and it was only Labour that wanted a national health service. And it was true, Bevan completely sidelined the idea of a local provision of health in favour of a national one because he didn't trust every local authority to deliver it. And he said there has to be a national objective of a national health service. And I think he was right. And I think we ought to support him in doing that at the time. But there are some fundamental flaws in the NHS. One is that the doctors were never part of the NHS. They were contracted to it. They now are the major force running the commissioning organizations. And the drug industry was never taken into public ownership. The pharmacy industry, it was always buying in from it. Um, private beds were never taken out or completely of the National Health Service. And we now have, uh, through PFI and um, contracting out of services, the most massive hollowing out of the health service. And I was appalled when Alan Milburn was, was doing that kind of stuff when he was um, Secretary of State, any more than appalled of it when An Andrew Lansley or Hunt or anybody else does it. And uh, I think we have to argue very strongly for a universal health service. If we don't, then it's not a very big step away from saying the private sector will provide the health service, but saying, well, you can pay for it, you start off not paying the whole amount, and you end up with a privatized health service. So that's where this, this whole logic leads to. But I'm always impressed by the, the level of commitment to the NHS. Why do we get 5,000 people marching down the Holloway Road to save the A&E department at the Whittington? They didn't. They did it because not because they all need it, fortunately, but because they recognise the value of a collective NHS provision. And so, um, I think we just have to be uh, very, uh, very vigilant on it. Um, the collective value yeah. is exactly yeah. the thing I mean. Mm. And you see, I can remember. 
I, I would have thought about 10, 15 years ago, if I was in a taxi, the ordinary taxi driver would probably, although you're far right of any political persuasion, and I would have said, would you pay an extra penny in the pound to guarantee university students don't have to pay student fees? I think most would have said yes. If you ask many of those same people now, they might say, well, I didn't go to university, so why should I pay money so that some people go to university and get a better job than I've got? And that's a cultural yeah. malaise, namely that people do not think, what kind of society do I want to live in? Mm. They think, what is good for me? What? So it narrows down to very narcissistic and selfish aims, uh, and that removes that sense of... But I think what I'm trying to say is that that has been led politically. And the Labour Party, in terms of the leadership of the party, seem completely unable to challenge that change in, uh, in ideology. Well, the, the, uh, the change in ideology came um, slowly, but more rapidly when Margaret Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party and her government. This, the idea that... Uh, there's no such thing as society and all that matters is money was the sort of central narrative that she was putting forward and um, this then in turn encourages the measurement of success in terms of your financial wealth the value of your house and uh, or, or, or rather than your contribution to society and once you've changed a mindset into valuing people by the sense of their financial wealth rather than their contribution to society, you then end up with um, it being very easy to destroy a whole lot of things that um, hitherto people have held dear. And I think what's interesting is the way the support for the principle of the National Health Service has actually remained very strong despite all of that. And uh, even Thatcher was forced to declare the NHS was safe in her hands, which was a sort of bit of a, a abusive language, really. Um, the other point, just to widen the demo democratic argument on a bit, is national governments try to legislate and national governments try to, or parliaments try to, sorry, introduce things like health and safety legislation, uh, restriction on employment exploitation, Equalities Act, all those kind of things. Yet, we live in a globalized economy where the massive unaccountable power of global corporations is so huge. They can make or break national economies. They can make or break or destroy um, the advances that have been made in various places in order to compete with somebody somewhere else who's going to do something for a bit less. So you, you'll be hearing the words um, TTIP after a while. Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. This is uh, the new big agenda that's coming down the coming around the block. This is the EU and the United States discussing a transatlantic trade agreement. Now, you think of the comparative levels of health and safety, employment protection, environmental protection legislation in the USA compared to the norm across the European Union. You look at the right-to-work states in the USA where unions are effectively banned, um, and you, you look at all those things, and you see coming down the track is going to be opening up of your cultural industries, so French protection of their film industry, 
the for quite still quite large amounts of money that go into cultural in, industries in Britain will be seen as a subsidy that Hollywood doesn't like, therefore will be removed. You will then see health and safety at work legislation and all this kind of thing. So the gradual erosion of all the things that we believe in. And when I've raised the question in debate, why is the NHS not being taken off the table on this? They say, well, all services, all public services must be on the table. Very, very dangerous move. Now, maybe TTIP is going to be defeated by a combination of trade union and, uh, broadly speaking, progressive left opposition um, and a combination with the isolationists in the USA that don't want anything to do with anybody else anywhere in the world for whatever reasons. There's always, there's always that to fall back on, the sort of John Birch Society uh, element lining up with the others. Um, but it is a very dangerous thing. And anyone that thinks that I'm, I'm sort of talking sort of complete nonsense here, if you just examine the effects of NAFTA, North American Free Trade Association Agreement between Canada, USA, and Mexico, presented to Mexico as um, your big opportunity to get into the US market, presented to the USA as your big chance to sell in Mexico. The reality has been flooding the Mexican market with US farm produce produced under subsidy in the USA, driving a lot of very poor Mexican farmers out of existence, very low wages in Mexico being exploited by um, US companies, and the loss of jobs in the USA. But, and, but huge levels of profit for the big corporations that sell um, sell cars or sell trucks or sell chemicals, fertilizers, and all that sort of thing. And the losers are the very poorest, most marginalized people, both in the USA, in the urban areas, and the very marginalized people in, in Mexico. And that is the direction that this whole idea of these, these trade partnerships are going are to run into. Thanks very much. Now, there are a, a number of other areas that I would like to cover, but I'm not going to cover them now, but they include perhaps hearing more about um, Jeremy's work with the, the Chagos Islanders and also your, your passion about arts uh, funding, public arts funding, and the dangers to that in our countdown. But I think it's time to um, open it out uh, uh, to, to you. To, now, I, one of the things I would say is, of course, if people have got questions to ask, that, that's fine, and ask your questions. But don't feel that you can't speak unless you've got some question to ask. You may just have a comment to make that isn't a question, and that's extremely welcome, too. So, good. Wait for the microphone. And it would be helpful, if you don't mind, if people say, you know, just a, a couple, you know, few words about who they are, you know. Okay, my name is Rada Kani. Uh, I do many things, but I, for my sins, I am a doctor of medicine. <laughs> That's how I started life. Um, two things, really. Uh, I completely share your sentiments, both of you, completely. Um, just a reference to the transatlantic trade partnership um, question. This this is absolutely deadly. It's mm. it's really deadly. And, and and what is frightening is that people don't know about it. Yes, right. Now I do not know why this is. It may be that you can tell us why it, there is. It is extraordinary how little information there is about it. If people knew how atrocious it was and how it would deprive every country that joins it of their sovereignty over fundamental services and so on. Uh, you know, so why is that? That's one. But but the second issue, which 
perhaps would have been very good to have taken up is, 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 is capitalism. Why is capitalism so triumphant? Why did it succeed so well? Why is it still succeeding? You know, when you look at the bankers' crisis in 2008, can anybody believe that after the damage that was done, mm -hmm. and pointing clearly for any intelligent person, that the system was rotten. It wasn't just a question of banks. The whole economy was rotten, this neoliberal uh, economy. How come that's still working? I mean, still we're still doing it. What is that about? Why? Why cannot it cannot it can't be defeated? Can I just get a sense of how many people are at, at this moment wanting to speak? Could you just raise your hand so I can get a sense? Let's oh, quite, quite, quite let's, all, let's all say a word. I said plenty. I was wondering, how would you like to do it? One way would be to answer each question. Another way would be to make a note of questions and to let a number of people speak. Which way would you rather do it? I would rather make a note and deal with them, but I'd like to just say this on Garda's point yes, about okay. TTIP, if I may, because I think it's a very strong point. You're probably surprised to hear that the negotiations between the EU and the USA are going on in secret. There is two teams, a team from each side, that are allegedly doing the negotiations. Um, members of the European Parliament, national parliaments, and everybody else are not allowed to see the documents that are being presented to these. Goodness knows what kind of lobbying is going on from IBM, from BT, or any other big company on the opening up uh, uh, of all these markets. And this thing is going on at breakneck speed and due to be presented uh, next year for conclusion. And um, we had, um, I've raised the issue in Parliament, there's been two debates on it. And um, some people are of the view that it will produce 20 million new jobs or 200 million new jobs or 2 billion new jobs or 3 trillion pounds or something. And the figures become sort of quite esoteric actually. Um, and they say, well, hang on, if we had more trade with the USA, we'd sell much more, and these are like economies, and we've got to do this in order to stand up against China. Hang on a minute. Wait, 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 wait. let's just think a minute. What are we doing to this planet? What are we doing to this world? What are we doing in promoting consumerism over social and uh, security? And what are we doing to the environment? Yes, we have a degree of environmental protection legislation in Europe, um, that is undermined by the lack of any environmental protection legislation in China or other producing countries. So in a sense, we're exporting pollution somewhere else. Surely what we need to be working for is uniting peoples around the world that are demanding job security, are demanding health security, are demanding environmental security. But if you have a, a global system that isn't dedicated towards making sure everybody eats and everybody has a doctor and every child has a school. If instead you have a global system that's designed to uh, say success equals the amount, the largest amount of money you've got and you can't argue with these big companies because they're too big to argue with and the banks are too powerful, then you do end up with a chaotic world where division becomes greater not less and we have a technology which is a thousand times more brilliant in many ways than when I was born, uh, yet one-sixth of the world's population are starving, a quarter of the world's population are hungry, and the life expectancy differences and the wealth inequality differences are greater than ever. 
So we're too narrow often in our looking at things. We're trying to deal with global capital power within a national framework. They are bigger than we are. They're unaccountable to anybody. And so I, I'm not suggesting we're going to set up a world parliament tomorrow that's going to change everything. What I do think is we have to have a sense of solidarity with people around the world in order to try to bring about that change. So nothing would please me more than to be a strong environmental movement in China that we could all link up with and support. And, and there's plenty of other examples of that. So, I mean, thanks for, you. Thanks for your point, Gardo. Um, and thanks for all that you do as well. Thank you. Well, why has capitalism survived and, and gone on? I think it's, it goes back to the point that um, you were making, David, that um, success is measured in money and not in, not in value, and therefore somehow or other, making loads of money through a bank or making loads of money through investment, which doesn't necessarily actually produce anything other than more money, is somehow seen as a good thing. It's an aspiration to be rich at somebody else's expense rather than aspiration to achieve um, greater security or freedoms in society. And I think that is an underlying thing. The other one is, I guess, the um, weakness of working class and trade union movements around the world and the divisions within them uh, around the world, which does, of course, work to strengthen things. And so maybe TTIP debate, the transatlantic trade debate, will waken people up a bit. And they'll begin to realize that a lot of what they hold dear is actually at stake in this particular agreement. Take a few together. Now. I, I think one of the things about capitalism is that um, uh, it, 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 you could say that the capitalist class know extremely well how to look after their interests, and they make a bloody good job of it. They own the media. They uh, uh, have made a tremendously good job of making it seem there is no other way of political and social organization. So we're saturated in capital, but we don't even see it anymore. And I think the collapse of the uh, the Eastern Bloc created an atmosphere of absolute triumph uh, of the neoliberal project. So I think uh, we're living in an epoch of triumph. And even as you say, the failures do not challenge the systemic faults within the system, where uh, exchange value will always rule over use value. But anyway, more questions. Uh, yes, please. We'll take a few together. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just carrying on the TTIP thing, is there any hope that it will be debated and thrown out? Okay. Another question. Yeah. Here. Here, please. Okay. Hi. Um, you're uh, very active on social media and Twitter in particular. I was wondering if you could say, hello, I'm over here, <laughs> a little about how you feel social media might be a tool for democracy. Yeah, good. And Hi, I'm Martin Wilkinson. I have a special interest in the epidemiology of um, income and wealth. So I was very interested in what you said about health differences um, in the geography of life and death being due to physical things. I thought interesting change has happened because once perhaps inequality produced differences in physical surroundings, uh, such as pollution, as you described, and that produced health differences. Now I think the effect is direct. So it's the actual differences in wealth that get into our, not our bodies so much, but through our heads, our understanding. And one of the things that you said today was about a change of values so that people think more of, less of society and more of uh, mm. 
valuing people by individual wealth. And that feeds into, because the mechanism seems to be that as you get your income and your sense of your wealth, it influences a sense of your worth, and that affects your health and how you behave in society. I just wanted to mention a couple of other things. Report on French and UK graduates being asked about their aspirations in the last week. And UK graduates said they wanted to move around and do well and get lots of money, basically. And the French were much more willing to talk about these are people from Sciences Po, one of the big uh, prestige universities. They're much more willing to think about the public good and serving their country. And lastly, I think... Um, there is ideology, you've implied there's sort of death of ideology, but there's ideology implied in all sorts of things. For instance, we hear about trade union barons, but we don't hear the kind of, that kind of abusive language being used about Bankers. captains of industry yeah. and capital and so on. Captain is a kind of nice thing, and a baron is a bad thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the gentleman here. My name's uh, Adam Wilson, a local musician and working fundraising as well just on two things was I wonder what Jeremy what your views are about engaging young people in their democratic rights exercising their democratic rights sorry for you. Um, secondly what your in their democratic rights and then it tailed off to vote to voting right. using the vote right. yeah. um, secondly was I wonder if you had any views on the mayor's uh, recent scuffering of Southbank Centre's plans to um, allow access to arts for more millions more people when he decided to get some street cred by Siding with the um, skateboard fraternity who operate underneath the South Bank Centre of Queen's Hall. Okay. I think maybe we'll try and deal with some of these uh, questions and comments. Do you want to, to go first? Yeah. I'll take um, a little note of you. <coughs> um, on, the, on the last point about engagement of young people and, and also the earlier question on social media, uh, <coughs> I think young people. Um, are often quite put off by the political system in this country. They feel unexcited by it. They feel unexcited by the um, conformity that exists in politics to a, a large extent. But that's not to say there aren't very large numbers of young people that are motivated and uh, do do a lot of things. Like uh, I remember when we founded the Stop the War Coalition in 2001, we were expecting a... Um, fairly small turnout at our inaugural meeting and three and a half thousand people came, mostly young people who were just angry about the idea of being dragged <coughs> into the Afghanistan wars as well before Iraq. And then the whole thing grew from there. Um, so it's not to say they're not passionate. This links me into the point about social media. Now I think social media is very interesting <coughs> for lots of reasons. Print media is a declining influence in our society. <clears throat> BBC is an important factor, but not the only factor in the broadcast media by any manner of means. Um, and what goes on in the social media and uh, Twitter, Facebook, etc., is actually an opportunity people have, often to say totally outlandish things, but also a way of putting out information and putting out ideas. And... Uh, I use it quite a lot, and I I think it's a, a good way of communicating with people. The problem is it doesn't give you an opportunity for analysis. It gives you an opportunity for a quick comment or a quick piece of information. So we move to the um, 
168 characters um, generation rather than something um, more substantial, which is an issue we've all got to live with. I, I spend a lot of time visiting schools and colleges and, and talking to young, young people or listening to what they have to say. And I spent part of today at St. Jude's Primary School talking to the, or listening to their school council, which was very interesting, their perceptions of their school and their, and their community and their society. And sadly, most Islington children usually want to ban people from doing anything else. So it's always about banning things, banning litter, banning smoking, banning drinking, banning cars, banning litter, banning noise, banning homework, banning, uh, just ban everything, you know, and usually put people in prison if they don't accept the ban, which is quite depressing. I thought we had quite a big enough prison population as it is, actually. Um, but there, there is that level of engagement. Do they feel we live in a democracy? No. Do they think that they have rights beyond elections and what is a democratic society, often something that is barely discussed at all. And I think in the schools, uh, the most important thing is actually a serious look at the way history is taught in our schools and history is understood. Not so much at the graduate and A-level opportunities, because I think it's often very good there. It's the understanding of the growth of our world and how things have changed. Where do racist attitudes come from, other than a sense of superiority? Where does it come from? Why is this discussion about the British Empire being a good empire and all the other empires being bad? How about all empires are bad? Or all empires are good? What about it? You know, there isn't that. There's that. And uh, we're now going to go through this rather strange commemoration of the First World War, which David Cameron has started on by standing in front of the Menem Road saying we would celebrate the First World War. Strange choice of paintings to stand in front of to celebrate anything. and um, But that will give us an opportunity to discuss issues of war and peace, and uh, I think that's good. A um, couple other points that were raised. The point our, our friend raised about... Um, person you, you know in prison. I don't know anything about the individual case, so I cannot comment on the individual case. Obviously, if somebody's accused of something, they must have a right, A, to know of what they're accused, B, have a right of representation, and nobody should be in prison without charge or trial or access to le legal um, issues at all. And the media should be extremely careful how they report things ahead of a court case. And um, I, I don't know about the individual cases that you put forward. And uh, if there are arguments against prominent individuals, then they shouldn't be hidden away from it. But again, they have rights as well to hear the case that's against them. And last night I was at a meeting just down the road at London Met University with Carol Duggan, the aunt of uh, Mark Duggan, and very interesting discussion about the whole way in which the police and media interacted around the time of his killing. And uh, so I think the questions of justice and access to justice are very important. And um, uh, I spent a lot of years on miscarriage of justice cases and no doubt many more years being spent on them as well, which I think is something that's actually extremely important. Um, was there anything else in that? Well, well, just well, one question. I can't read my own writing, actually. About um, the consequences of... of uh, the um, uh, inequalities of, of yeah. 
Well, the inequalities uh, and, and, uh, are increasing, and health that goes with inequality is absolutely there. Dudley Stamp wrote his book at a time of um, heavy industrial society in Britain, and he talked about the health of workers in foundries and places like that. And I remember going to foundries in the 1960s, and it was just like sort of literally bedlam. You wonder how anybody ever survived that. And of course, the, uh, those workers that did have pensions had massive pension funds because they all died out before they reached pensionable age. Uh, disgusting working conditions. Those conditions still carry on, but somewhere else now. Mm. Now in India, it's in Bangladesh, it's in China, it's in Indonesia, it's in a lot of other places. And the health inequalities are not necessarily always totally where you live, it's the income level on which you live, the education level you've achieved, and the quality of the food that you get, and um, your own uh, perceptions of uh, what rights you can exercise within within healthcare, and um, those inequalities are still there, and they, they have to be seriously addressed. Therefore, things like school meals are important, things like not sec sanctioning people on benefits so the whole family loses all income because of uh, some uh, uh, perceived transgression of, of benefit rules. Cannot we defend our welfare state on the principle that real security doesn't come from having a nuclear bomb that could destroy the whole planet? Real security comes from knowing you've got a house, got a health service, got something to eat and got a school for your children and you're not going to be destitute. We have a benefit system that makes sure you're not destitute. Is that not a better form of security? Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Please do. Yes, please do. I'd love to see it. Thank Press you. Down. Um, it's hard to follow up what you were just talking about, but I was I was um, impressed earlier when you were talking more about the trade unions. Um, I had the opportunity to go to a trade union conference, an annual conference one year, and I was interested in the, it was back when you we were talking about Heathrow and, and expanding to a third runway. And I remember that, that after all the arguments about climate change and you know how we shouldn't have more flights, the TUC's argument was that they were going to support the expansion to protect 2,000 jobs. Um, but what I was interested in was they weren't really taking into account the 2,000 homes or families that were going to be displaced for the runway. And it kind of it stayed with me as my impression of the trade unions, that it is very interested in protecting their members. And I often experience that when they shut down the tubes for a few days that you know to fight their point but we all tend to suffer so there seems to be some kind of value that the unions perhaps are missing and that there's a bigger picture somehow you know that they have to consider so I was wondering your impression on that okay I'd like to make a comment about this lady's attitude to capitalism it's really a uh, comment on what she said Think of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. Think of Karl Marx. Who most benefited the human race? The Singer Sewing Machine Company or Karl Marx? That's my comment. I'm a psychotherapist in the National Health Service, 25 years in Newham, um, watching the decimation of the mental health service. 
generally, particularly in East London. Um, but my question isn't particularly political. It is, I think there's a general disillusionment with politicians. You're my MP. I live in Islington. I'm not disillusioned with you. Um, perhaps I ought to add that. What I want to know is, what do you think, at a human level, at a moral level, makes a good politician? And who do you think is a good politician at the moment, apart from yourself? <laughs> this question might have been touched on a bit already. Um, you mentioned uh, holding governments to account and how there's a, a democratic deficit because it's not done. Uh, to what extent do you think that's a feature of the way that our press is uh, controlled in this country? You've got about four or five people, Rupert Murdoch best known, a few others, and they very largely dictate what people see and what people think, I believe, uh, and their general worldview. Um, hi, thanks for a very interesting talk. Um, just to say sort of where I'm coming from, studying psychoanalysis at UC at the moment, and I enjoyed a talk from David a few weeks ago, which was um, very interesting. But I'd like to take up his point about um, Labour being completely unable to challenge what seems to be a pervasive narcissistic ideology. Um, I wonder what Jeremy thinks about Miliband's ideological credibility um, and whether this feeds into a wider point about a seeming lack of ideology amongst political leadership, uh, perhaps being due um, to the influence of special, uh, special advisors who've since become um, cabinet members. I think it's the third that are with Miliband, Bowles and Cameron. <coughs> all expats, as I think they're referred to. However, does this mean that they um, lack the grassroots engagement that's required if they actually earn their ideological stripes? I would just like to know, Jeremy, how you keep going. Yes, I was going to ask that. What were you, you going to say? Okay. Um, we've only got five minutes uh, left, really. So over to you. Fine. Thank, thanks very much for that. Um, on the point of trade unions, why do people join a union? Usually in order to protect their wages and conditions, to try and improve wages and conditions. And uh, it can be incredibly local, it can be incredibly narrow, it can as a broader sense be something much more significant where the union would adopt policies on a much wider range of things. And um, uh, why do people take industrial action, uh, usually it's an act of desperation at the end. Anyone that takes industrial action is losing money, um, is uh, therefore there's a degree of personal hardship involved in it. In the case of the dispute over um, the ticket office closures on the London underground system, yes, it did cause a, a massive amount of disruption and quite interestingly, uh, Transport for London are now negotiating with um, the w representatives of both the unions involved on every single one of the ticket offices across London. I want to see a properly staffed, safe underground system, and uh, I, I think that that is in the interests of everybody in London, obviously those that produce the service as well as those that use use the service. Um, the point you made about Heathrow, very I interesting one. I've had... Um, arguments with a lot of people in the unions about nuclear power, about nuclear weapons, and um, 
when I say that we should not be spending a hundred billion pounds replacing Trident nuclear submarines, I'm told that um, if we don't do that, it will cost a lot of jobs in Barrow. Uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want people to lose their jobs in Barrow. And so, with our organisation, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, just down the road here, we um, have worked with the Nuclear Education Trust on uh, an alternative economic strategy for those places affected by it. And um, I would say you have to have a responsible approach of looking at the, the larger picture, but also protecting individuals against desperate destitution as a result of it. Skilled jobs don't have to make nuclear weapons. They can make just as easily make very good trains, passenger ships, or, or lots of other things. It's what we as a society decide to do with those skills. The point you made about Heathrow very, is a very good one. The... Very interesting. When we approached the last election, there was a big opposition to some extent within the Labour Party and within the other parties to Heathrow expansion. And um, David Cameron then said that he would not allow the Heathrow expansion to take place. And, uh, and John McDonnell, as the MP for the area, was opposed to it, and numbers of others were. And the third runway idea was cancelled. There was then very clever media campaign by the airlines and by Heathrow, starting with an extremely unsubtle 16-sheet poster at the entrance to Westminster Underground Station, which half the MPs walked past twice a day, um, on the need for expanding Heathrow. It wasn't, that bit wasn't subtle at all. And then a whole media campaign about how impossible it was for Heathrow to survive unless it was expanded. Then Boris Johnson comes up with his island in the river uh, idea, and very little debate about the nature of pollution, the numbers of aircraft using it, the size of aircraft, the technology of them, the railway alternatives for domestic and close European transport, all those kind of things. The whole thing was based on, on the need for Heathrow expansion, and sadly some unions fell straight into that. Others didn't, and uh, if the third runway goes ahead, then Sipson Village and a number of other places are completely obliterated, and there's a huge noise problem all over West London, indeed, all over here. So there, there is obviously a serious debate to be had about transport and travel and the pollution aspects of it, and um, maybe people take an over-narrow view of this sometimes. The point our friend raised about whether the Singer Sewing Machine Company or Karl Marx done more to the world. Good point, actually. I like that. Um, can I put it back to you and say, how about the guy that invented, or the woman who invented the sewing machine, they did a lot of good to the world. Did it have to be the Singer Sewing Machine Company? Now, I take your point about innovation uh, and, and development, and um, and that is, that is interesting. And... Um, uh, we all benefit from technology in some way, but that benefit isn't fairly shared out. So, of course, yeah, of course, please do. Well, I wouldn't say because of Marx, but I think people that have misused ideology have killed people. Yeah, I don't think Marx himself went out killing people, particularly he was writing and drinking most of his life. Um, but... Um, uh, yes, you can improve people's living standards and opportunities um, by technology, but unless you share the benefits of that technology, you end up with something very, very brutal indeed. So why, for example, are people still working very long hours 
why are, is there such massive inequality when there's such high levels of technology around to improve the living standards of all of us? Um, and so I throw back the question. If you organize the world on the basis of making money at the expense of other people, making wealth at the expense of other people, rather than protecting our environment, promoting the common good, then you do end up with things that are very brutal. People kill people in wars. What, what is the main motive behind wars? The main motive is a combination of sale of weapons and arms in order to promote a war and theft of natural resources in order to make somebody else some distant place wealthy. Why have three million people died in the Congo in the past 10 years? Because it's got so many natural resources. The Congo is still one of the poorest places um, in Africa. But we do have the shocking, absolutely shocking news that a country has invaded another country undemocratically without any international agreement. I'm talking about the, the, the posturing, the hypocritical posturing about the Ukraine oh. by governments who are responsible for Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, much of what's going on in Syria. And Libya. Libya. I, I, absolutely. I do not support Russian military intervention in Ukraine. I do not support American military intervention in Afghanistan or Iraq or British military intervention in, in plenty of other places. Um, and uh, I hope that, and I hoped at the end of the Cold War we'd see a development of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and the end of the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And maybe the big lesson to come out of the Ukraine is not that NATO should expand further east and Russian militarism should grow as a rival to it. We need a demilitarization of the, of the Ukraine and denuclearization of the um, uh, arms capabilities of those, those places. Two points just before we finish, because you're going to want to go on. What very kind question about politicians and what they do. Um, it's really about contact and accountability, and also being the role of people that change things in society. I'll give you an example. Um, things around this community have changed a lot over the years. We've got some really good things that have happened. The Archway Road widening campaign started, if you, if you go back far enough, the 1944 County of London plan, Lord Abercrombie's plan, envisaged a motorway running all through this borough. It was there. It's there in the County of London plan. I went to Hay on Wye and bought a copy of it in a bookshop and I've read it. It's there. Okay. Nice motorway. It was through to the docks. And uh, in much later on, in Haringey, I was chair of the planning committee, and um, I announced that I was going to use the council resources to oppose the widening of the Archway Road. This is the part up in Haringey. And I was declared mad by most members of the Labour group and the local press and numbers of others. They said, well, the cars have got to go somewhere. I said, yeah, stay home. What we need is not more roads. We need better public transport, because London cannot cope with an increase in car traffic, pollution levels and everything else. And so the campaign rose and eventually was successful in um, uh, the Archer Road not being widened. Then later on, somebody wanted to build a motorway through this part of Islington. That was divided, uh, de uh, defeated rather. And um, London is one of the cities that I think can be quite proud of the fact that we have an increasing use of public transport, decreasing use of private car, and therefore better quality of life for everybody. Not completely there yet, by any manner of means, but that 
comes from people saying we're not prepared to put up with it. Those were popular movements against the um, received wisdom of the day. And so I think what politicians and political representatives have to do is remember from whence they came and remember from whence they will end up. Because uh, I, would, I remember saying to um, somebody who'd been a, who I didn't particularly agree with, who'd been appointed a minister, I said, there are two certainties in life. One is you'll be a minister, and the second one is one day you won't be a minister. <laughs> so on the way up, be nice to the people as you climb over them, because you're going to meet them again on the way down. <laughs> um, and uh, ideologies and David Miliband and Spads in Parliament. Um, yeah, there is a, there is a problem in our, in our politics, uh, and that is a quite narrow political class in all parties, not just Labour, Conservatives, Lib Dems, other, you know, or, or, all other parties, which is obsessed with political process and not obsessed with ideas. So it's obsessed with how you do down X in order to promote Y, how you then shut Y up in order to promote Z, how you then do this, do that, do the other, in order to achieve what? Uh, to achieve absolutely what? And so I remember a young guy came up to me, I'd been to speak to Oxford Labour Club, and he said to me, how will I get into the house? And I said, do you need to? <laughs> he said, no, but the house needs me. I just, he wasn't, this guy wasn't shy, I have to say that. <laughs> uh, and he said, what do you think I should do? I said, when you finish university, go away and do something. Get involved in a cause. Take up a cause, a fight, do something. Don't look at the whole world as a series of processes and hierarchies and so on. And so um, when political leaders come from a very narrow class that's only ever con concerned itself with process, then uh, I feel very sad about it. If you think historically, how did women get the vote? They campaigned in an unbelievably brave way. And they suffered for it. Unbelievably, I mean, Holloway Prison, plenty of women suffered appallingly with forced feeding and everything else in Holloway Prison. Those people, the Chartists, the 19th century, which Queen Victoria described as those horrid men uh, who came around, what was their motivation? There was nothing in it for any of them. They did it because they wanted to see a better society in the future. And the, the, the world is, is littered with such, with such people. And so what keeps us all going? I think the inspiration of ordinary people seeking a better life and a better world for all, not just for themselves. And surely that is what um, the kind of society I want to live in is about, where you share the wealth and the resources and you preserve the planet, you don't destroy the planet, you don't destroy people in the process. I'm fed up with us spending £35 billion a year on weapons of war and believing we have to have global reach to get all over the planet. We don't. What we need yeah. to do is promote human rights, democracy, and environmental sustainability. That will give us respect in the world, not the size of our bombs. Well, it's been a, a very inspirational evening, and it's sort of two evenings for me, having had the chance to talk to you yesterday. If I can just perhaps end by, by saying one thing is that one of the things that you made clear to me is that, that um, you can't be a politician 
if you wish to rise through the ranks and that wish overwhelms the political ideas that motivated you um, to come into the party. And of course, one of the things we didn't mention is, is the role of the whips. <laughs> and um, am I allowed to say what you told me about the whips? Um, the whips, you know, are supposed to phone up and demand that you vote with the party. And, they, uh, and that's their job, and to threaten you that you won't, of course, rise through the party ranks if you don't toe the line. And, uh, but um, they do still phone, Jeremy, but they just phone to put a little tick in the box. We assume you'll be voting against us again today. <laughs> and uh, it's quite clear that for Jeremy, the, it's the ideas that matter. And those ideas, it seems to me, are big ideas. The ideas about the big society. The big society is socialism and trade unionism and democracy and, uh, and rights. But they're also about what's going on right next door, right here. He's very much a constituency MP and very, very proud of the heritage that he carries for this constituency. And so it's been a privilege listening to you, Jeremy, and thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Oh, really good. Thank you.